millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, as we're all aware, the war in Ukraine has seen a humanitarian disaster with the displacement of millions of people from their homes, many internally within the country, and more who felt they had no choice but to leave. We're told that we can expect here up to 200,000 refugees from the war, depending on how things go. That, in turn, is going to lead to major upheaval and a rapid response to accommodating these people who have effectively been I suppose, bombed out of their homes. Another aspect to the war, though, that has been raised is the nature and speed of the response in assisting victims compared to how this country and wider Europe address more recent conflicts in places like Afghanistan, Syria and Yemen. I think it's fair to say there was nothing near the same urgency or emotional outpouring from society at large as we've seen with them. Um, with this particular war. All of that, I think, is worthy of consideration, but should also be seen in the wider context of the EU's approach to war, immigration and refugees. Now, a while back, you may remember, we had an old friend of mine, John Wayne, from the UN on here, talking about his work at the time when he was setting up shelters for refugees on the Greek islands. Things have moved on. John is now in Yemen himself, and on the islands, the Greek government has set up so-called reception centres for the thousands who are still arriving there after perilous journeys across the Aegean or the Mediterranean seas. The Greek government is presenting this as bright, new, shining type of centres. Moving on from the crowded and dangerous camps that had sprung up in recent years, others, however, liken the new facilities to something approaching prisons. Now, folks, these issues are going to become more relevant as time goes on because irrespective of what happens in Ukraine, there is going to continue to be a steady stream of immigration from the poor south to places like Europe. And many of these people, no matter how well things go in terms of conflicts and what have you, huge numbers of these people will basically be climate refugees. And and unfortunately, that's going to continue for some time, it would appear. But how should immigrants be welcomed into Europe and by extension into this country? And are these new centres the proper way to process people who arrive here in desperate circumstances? One person who has some experience of the setup in Greece is Aideen Elliott, who's Refugee and Immigration Policy Coordinator at Oxfam Ireland. And Aideen joins us now. Aideen, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mick. Thanks for having me. Aideen. Tell me first about this centre, which seems to be a new prototype, on the island of Samos in Greece. Um, There's been some controversy about it. Yes, there has. So, as you mentioned, um, it's been pitched as a move away from the inhumane conditions um, that we all saw images of from, most famously from Lesvos, but from the other Greek hotspots as well, where people were sleeping in tents, 
for years. Um, there were rats and cockroaches, poor lighting and very poor sanitation facilities and toilets. That's still the case on, on in several of the camps. But they've opened on Samos in September and then I went there in December what's called a closed controlled access centre. So instead of sleeping in tents, people are sleeping in containers, you know, that kind of look like shipping containers. Mm. Um, But the closed centre, it really looks like a prison. So it has two layers of barbed wire fence all around it. There's CCTV everywhere. People are only allowed out certain hours of the day. And then to get back in, You pass through, like airport security, you know, our bags went on um, and we were searched personally and go through metal detectors and they show their fingerprints as well as their ID cards. So um, then when you arrive as well, there's kind of those tall lookout posts and there's private security and police all around. So it really does feel like a prison. Um, So while... People really welcomed uh, sleeping in containers instead of on the ground in tents. The prison-like feel obviously has a huge impact on people. And remember that people there are not um, migrants, really. They're people looking for international protection. So people who have fled some kind of persecution or conflict and are now making a claim for asylum, for international protection. As well as that, the centres are very isolated, So whereas before the camp was really close to the village and uh, people could interact um, and have um, some kind of support facilities, this we drove around 10 kilometres up quite steep mountainous windy roads to get there. So it's not something you'd be able to walk really. And there's a bus a few times a day, but it's €3.20 and a daily cash allowance is two euro fifty for somebody, so it's really prohibitively expensive. Yeah, I suppose some people immediately would make comparisons with the direct provision centres in this country. We'll come to that in a minute, Aideen. Mm. But the centres themselves, um, like I suppose, just putting a context for people as well who may not be completely across it. Effectively, the Greek islands, to a large extent, are a gateway to the EU for people from Asia and from North Africa fleeing conflict and I suppose everybody who comes at this stage is looking for asylum because that's the only way in effectively but in general terms most of them are fleeing conflict and they come across in very dangerous journeys to arrive there Um, and then they're put into these centres. Now the Greek government will first instance say that the main thing is that they are now in safe living conditions as opposed to those dangerous kind of camps that they used to live in and are therefore in a better situation. Yeah, so the Greek government have said that, but the Greek Minister for Migration has also said that these centres would act as a deterrent, that they were determined that Greece would not be a country that was hosting um, a number of Afghan refugees after the Taliban took over there in the autumn. So there is a clear objective to make the conditions bad enough to deter people from coming to Europe to seek refuge. And that's in a context where 85% of the refugees in the world are in developing countries. So the richest countries in the world, uh, including European countries, are really not taking a a, a decent share of responsibility for people who flee. And as you mentioned, um, people take 
terribly dangerous journeys to get to Europe. And the journeys have gotten more dangerous as the years have gone by with smugglers wanting to avoid detection. So they're using smaller boats that are more flimsy. And then also because of alleged pushbacks. So pushing somebody back who's trying to claim protection across a border is obviously illegal under international and European law. But this is what we've seen at several European borders. Um, I met women when I was in Samos who described their alleged pushbacks. One woman described being pushed back by the Greek Coast Guard and she described to me the sexual and the physical assault um, that she suffered during that pushback. Sorry, when you say pushback, do you mean literally told to turn around? Yes, towing the boat back into Turkish water or pushing it back. Yeah, so um, not only is that illegal, but survivors give testimony of physical and sexual assault during the pushback uh, on top of that. So those journeys, yes, are very dangerous. And I think the the Ukrainian crisis has really brought a lot of images to us, um, you know, through social media and through the media of people fleeing. And we can really imagine, imagine if those people got to the border of Europe and Europe said no and pushed them back into conflict. But that is what's happening around Europe at different border points. Yeah, and that point you make, and I think this is one that particularly us in Europe um, very conveniently ignore or forget, that 85% of all refugees fleeing conflict are actually located in developing countries, which by definition are far worse equipped to deal with an, a big influx of people than relatively wealthy area like the EU is. Yeah, absolutely. Traditionally, the biggest host countries have been countries like Pakistan, Uganda, um, and that continues even after 2015. So, and I think just to pick up on you mentioned as well that climate change could lead to more climate refugees, but the overwhelming majority of those people will stay in the global south because especially people who move because of climate wouldn't have the money to leave the local area and they might just leave to the next village because of a flood or something like that. Um, so Oxfam have an appeal at the moment about the Horn of Africa where um, in the first three months of this year, 13 million people have left their homes looking for food, but all of them have stayed uh, in Africa, in that region, and we'd expect that to continue. Yeah, that is interesting, actually, as you say, and thought that those who, in terms of literally having to leave because they can no longer rely on the land, they would, of course, be the poorest people and not be in a position to even make it anywhere near um, heading towards Europe. The other thing, Aideen, again now, I'm just coming at it from a, a, a position that other people may regard it, like these centres in Greece, I mean, some of the descriptions, they're all air-conditioned, they have a number of restaurants, basketball courts, a football pitch, uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, and the other thing that some people would suggest is that, well, without having some form of uh, control in terms of the people that arrive on the shores of Europe, effectively, you're talking about open door policy. And is that realistic? Yeah, well, we would say that we're calling for them to follow the law. Um, international law, as you know, the 1951 convention set up in the wake of World War II so that people who were fleeing would be able to flee. Um, so 
the law is that people have the right to apply for asylum. And then they go through a rigorous process where they have to prove that if they were sent home, if they were returned, um, that they would be in grave danger. And if they manage to prove that, then they get international protection. But everybody has the right, and it's a requirement to join the EU that a state has to has to be a signatory to that convention. I didn't see the air-conditioned restaurants. Um, I did see a football pitch, uh, and people were playing football. Yeah, and I saw the food being delivered. It was like uh, like air, you know, that airplane food um, with the plastic oh God, yeah, cover. Yeah. And then people went and collected it uh, and ate in their containers. I would stress, though, the, the mental health impact of being somewhere like that and bearing in mind that these are people who left behind trauma, then had a traumatic journey, and then are in this prison-like conditions. And they're asking us, why are we here? We're not even accused of any crime. Why are we being punished? All we wanted to do was, well, what, what everybody said to me when I asked them, you know, what, what are you really looking for? What do you really want change? Everybody said, I want peace. I want peace in my head. I want to be able to sleep at night. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, that thing about the air conditioning and the restaurants, it could well be sort of uh, images are evoked in terms of the way perhaps it's spun by the government. You have this sort of image of, uh, I don't know, perhaps you mentioned airports, maybe airport restaurants and air conditioning, what have you. But as you say, the actual scene on the ground might necessarily live up to the spin, so to speak. But apart from that, Aideen, back again to this point, as you say, um, people are entitled under international law to seek asylum, but there is that process. And what countries, particularly I suppose the likes of Greece, because proportionately it would take a far greater number of asylum seekers in the first instance at any rate, what they would suggest is that unless they have some form of secure accommodation for prospective asylum seekers, then those asylum seekers may not bother with the process and just attempt to melt out into the general population and, if you know, effectively do a runner. And I, I presume that's the thinking behind it. Yeah, um, but then again, de facto detention of someone seeking asylum and mass detention is illegal. So for a European member state to be breaking international law is very, very serious. And as you say, Greece does have the overwhelming or has had the overwhelming majority of arrivals. So then there is... There has been a kind of uh, free riding on the part of countries who don't have an external border or who are far away from those borders and leaving Greece to take that responsibility. And we've really seen it in recent weeks. It would have been unthinkable to expect Romania and Poland, and Hungary 
to take responsibility for everybody fleeing Ukraine. And likewise, to expect Greece to take this responsibility is not fair and it's not working for anybody. So Ireland did relocate some asylum seekers from Greece in 2015. We opted into two programs. Um, but Ireland has a role to play here in relocating asylum seekers from Greece and also in monitoring the conditions in the camps. Because remember, these centres are 100% EU funded. So that means Irish funded as well. So we are responsible for what happens in those camps um, and um, the fact that international law is not being followed in, in, in cases there. And when you say international law is not being followed, do you mean in the manner that the camps are run? Yes. So it is illegal to detain people just for seeking asylum unless other avenues have been explored um, if there's a risk that somebody will abscond, as you said. So in November, three weeks before we went to Samos, the camp management introduced a new rule that unless you had a valid asylum card, you weren't allowed to leave the camp at all. So that affected one in five people living in the camp. So that's if you have arrived recently and they haven't processed your card yet, you wouldn't have it. Or if you had a first refusal and you were making a second claim, you also wouldn't have that card. So overnight, these people found themselves essentially imprisoned. And then one uh, Afghan asylum seeker brought a case to the court on Samos and the Greek court found that this was illegal detention. However, people tell us that they're still being detained. They're still not allowed to leave. So therefore, Greek, a Greek court has found this practice illegal and it's still happening. So the, imagine the distress of from one day to the next, you're just not allowed to leave this barbed wire surrounded camp. It's really unimaginable. And do the large majority of asylum seekers there apply for asylum in Greece? And how long does that process take? They do, and it takes a very long time. So people are waiting years for decisions sometimes. Um, the, the temporary protection directive that has been put in place for people fleeing Ukraine was designed partly to make sure that no member state's asylum system would become overwhelmed by a huge number of applications. Greece's system has been overwhelmed and the Temporary Protection Directive was never put in place uh, in that situation. And on the Thursday, when the justice ministers from the different EU member states unanimously agreed the Temporary Protection Directive for people fleeing Ukraine, which was a wonderful step, in announcing that, the commissioner um, in charge of migration, Yvlo Johansson, she said, in Greece, we have people sitting in camps who are waiting one year to even have an interview. Whereas now, um, people fleeing Ukraine will have protection over, overnight. So this really shows what can be done when EU leaders decide to do it. That uh, the law can be followed, protection can be given to people fleeing. But that choice was not taken in relation to people fleeing Syria and fleeing Afghanistan. And very welcome that it has been taken now. And then, Aideen, what would you say to people who say, OK, Ukraine is there. First of all, it's it's a neighbour of Europe. And, and you know, the human nature comes into it, it, it. Therefore, it's more relatable, if you want to put it that way. And the second thing is that 
if you had a, the same system from, from those fleeing conflicts, particularly the likes of Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen and these places, that there would be what's described, I suppose some people call a pull factor and that effectively you'd be inviting, you'd be sending out an invitation to refugees to come to Europe and thereby creating a scenario whereby you'd have huge numbers coming here, way in excess of, of, of those who arrive here as things are. You know yourself that would be a, a, an attitude that would be out there among certain sections of the population. Yeah, thanks. You know, I I think you're right. It is understandable. I think that, well, I've been wondering the last week if we saw this volume of images of people fleeing Afghanistan, would we have had the same outpouring? I can't help but wonder because um, I, I think that people just associate with human beings, they're human beings. And uh, I, I think we could have, you know, um, I would say we don't get to decide who we follow the law for. So we don't get to decide that we only follow the law when it comes to not uh, doing something illegal on our neighbours. And um, the law is the law. Had the temporary protection directive been put in place for Syria and Afghanistan, we could have avoided a huge humanitarian disaster. Um, remember, people have died from the conditions on European territory. Um, intense in the summer, intense in the snow in winter. In terms of push and pull factors, well, most people didn't have Europe in mind as their final destination. They moved along and as conditions, so for example, Lebanon is one of the biggest hosts of refugees in the world per, per head. The conditions became unlivable and then people moved on and on and they reached Europe. Um, so I don't think that people left with the pull factor of Europe in their mind, only they leave an intolerable situation. And if what they what they arrive to in a transit country is also intolerable, then they keep going. Right. And another thing then that uh, you, you hear raised anytime the, the issue is discussed is that is there any indication or of any major survey has been done to indicate, for example, the number of people who arrive in Europe, how many are fleeing conflict genuinely and how many are entirely understandable, no more than Irish people for generations heading off abroad to America and living illegally there, what have you, but how many are so-called um, economic migrants? Would you, Has anything been done in that area in terms of um, the number of people who arrive? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are figures in terms of the percentage of people who get uh, recognised uh, international protection, their claim is recognised. Um, I would say that there is no legal route to migration to, yeah. to Europe for many people, as you say, you know. Um, if you're looking if you're looking for work and you're looking to move, those routes don't exist. So certainly whenever I talk to uh, to policymakers, they say that makes their job more difficult. We know that just because somebody is denied asylum doesn't mean that they don't have a need for protection. And when we look at the recognition rates across different EU countries, well, everybody should, in theory, be, of course, um, applying the same criteria. Hmm. But an Afghan who applies in Luxembourg might have a 90% chance of getting their application recognised versus if they apply at one point in Bulgaria, it was much lower, around 20%. So... 
that would tell us that there are more factors at play than um, a simple objective evaluation of, is this person at risk? There are political factors uh, at play as well. And then also we have to remember that people under the 1951 convention, they can get international protection fleeing conflict, but also fleeing individual persecution. So we meet people who are, um, for example, persecuted because of their sexual orientation. Mm. Even their gender in some instances, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that's why we're very concerned when a country is designated as safe, a safe country, because what's safe for one person and one ethnic group or uh, one person with a sexual orientation wouldn't be safe for another. And in broad terms, when you mentioned the percentage that do receive asylum, what would you be talking about? Well, it varies from member state to member state. Right, yeah, but it, 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 it's it's very, as you say, they're, they're local factors. And the other thing, again, that plays into that is, and we saw this, for instance, in Germany, going back a few years when Angela Merkel, which was regarded as a very positive move, I think it was over a million uh, asylum seekers she, she invited into Germany, um, but there was some political upheaval as a result. And in terms of real politic, that feeds into things as well, doesn't it? That if you have a more generous, some might just describe it as a more humane approach to immigration, there, there can well be problems in terms of politically. And we've seen in countries like Hungary and to some extent Poland and bit in Italy, where you're going to find scenarios where people will play into those feelings as well in terms of looking for uh, political capital. Yeah, absolutely. So when uh, Angela Merkel um, allowed people to travel to Germany, um, that was a very interesting case because all she did was not apply the Dublin regulation. So the Dublin regulation decides which EU member state will be responsible for processing somebody's claim to asylum. And normally that would be, unless somebody has a prior link, maybe a previous visa or a family member to another member state, normally it'd be the first one they arrive in. So very predictively, this means that the member states with an external border, like Greece and Italy, can become overwhelmed. So the fact that to deal with the situation, Merkel had to actually suspend the cornerstone of EU uh, regulation on asylum shows how it's not fit for purpose. Um, yes, the real politic and the, the danger of people playing into or stoking fears um, is really one for leaders to deal with responsibly. Um, it's not an excuse to not follow national and international law. Um, and there are ways to deal with it. This is a global issue. Um, we could see it with Uganda hosting refugees. We can see it with Kenya hosting refugees. And then there are ways to deal with it to make sure that the host population um, are not left behind um, when there are limited resources and um, that hosting refugee populations also creates opportunities um, for host populations and that uh, integration is managed in a responsible way um, where people have a chance to contribute to their new communities. So being isolated in a prison-like camp up a mountain doesn't give you an opportunity to contribute to your new community. And likewise, being isolated in direct provision in Ireland does not give you an opportunity to contribute. Absolutely, absolutely, no doubt about that. And tell me, in, in terms of um, 
people in Oxfam, people who particularly uh, are dealing and have been for a long time with immigration from the south. The developments in Ukraine, I suppose it's only natural that in some ways people will look at that and say, well, when the chips are down in that respect, Europe's able to uh, facilitate. Why is it not, to use the old phrase, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander? Yes, well, it's wonderful to see what can be done um, when EU leaders want to do it and put their heads together. Um, I mean, in ways, the people have been ahead of the leaders sometimes because uh, we've seen such a wonderful outpouring of solidarity from uh, local communities. But we also saw this in 2015. We saw this in Greece. We saw this in several countries around Europe where uh, local people were organising uh, in solidarity with refugees arriving from Syria and other countries. What did not happen was the follow-up from leaders. And now that that has happened in this situation. Um, and that's great to see. It shows us what can be done. What nobody wants is for a kind of two-tier system to develop in Europe, where if you are fleeing one war, then you sit in a camp for years surrounded by barbed wire fence. And if you're fleeing a different war, then you have an opportunity to rebuild your life. So we can't have that develop a kind of a two-tier system. Um, Oxfam have a petition and a campaign about that um, at the moment. People can find on OxfamIreland.org called Equal Right to Refuge, um, asking to prevent a kind of preferential EU refugee response. And is there any fear that, and because it does look like a considerable number are going to come out of Ukraine because the, the horrors that are being perpetrated there, no less than horrors, obviously, in other places. And, and funny you mention it because I have a small bit of knowledge about Yemen, a place that there's virtual media blackout in and therefore we're not exposed to it all. Some of the things going on there are particularly brutal. But is there a danger that, um, to put it this way, in terms of, I don't know what you might call a well of compassion, both in terms of policy and in terms of attitudes within Europe, that it'll be diverted towards the situation in Ukraine at the expense of dealing humanely and properly with people coming here from conflicts elsewhere? I mean, I don't think that uh, compassion is finite, luckily. Um, we can we all have enough compassion uh, for lots of different people. I think it would be tragic, really tragic, if resources were diverted um, because, as you say, some things are in the spotlight and some things aren't. Um, the people affected by the terrible crisis in Ukraine, of course, um, deserve all of our compassion and resources, as do the 13 million people who left their homes in East Africa looking for food, as do, as you said, the people in Yemen who are in a food crisis and in Syria, where the price of food has doubled, uh, affected by wheat production um, from Ukraine and Russia, I think that to divert resources from those um, emergency situations would be a terrible tragedy we'd look back on. I agree with you. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but I certainly think you're right. It would be a terrible tragedy. And in a similar vein, Aileen, is there anything policy-wise that Europe and, and this country is obviously going to follow closely whatever the EU does, could do to 
make things that bit easier or that bit more welcoming without the type of upheaval that appears to me anyway to be uh, central to a lot of the thinking in terms of when they're when they're making policy in places like Brussels. Yes, certainly. There's a lot to be done. So as I said, those closed camps are 100% funded by the EU. So first of all, open the camps, allow people to move in and out whenever they want to. Um, make sure that the Greek asylum system is properly resourced so that claims to asylum are processed. And monitor the situation in the camps, because at the moment, civil society organisations aren't allowed in and out. Like I had to apply to the ministry to be allowed in and I had to wait for half an hour and have my documents checked. So there's no kind of monitoring of what's going on. Um, And uh, so those would be things to do in terms of the camps. Um, Also, investigate all um, allegations of pushbacks um, across the, the European borders. These are things that, you know, it's just the basics of following international law, but can certainly uh, be done. And then, as you probably know, at the moment, well, for the since September 2020, the EU has been renegotiating their whole approach to migration and asylum in the new pact on migration and asylum. So not all of that will apply to us because we're outside of Schengen. But we still have a voice and some things will still apply for, will apply to us. So really, we need Ireland to be using our voice there to call for a human rights based approach that doesn't establish this kind of two tier system and doesn't uh, roll back on any any rights. Um, also, we had search and rescue in the Mediterranean. Um, Ireland's naval forces made a wonderful contribution and then that stopped. Not only did it stop. But they have criminalised NGOs and other people who do search and rescue themselves. Um, as you'll probably remember, the Irishman Sean Binder um, in his court case in Lesbos. So stop criminalising people and also restart those search and rescues so that we don't have those more tens of thousands of tragic deaths at our borders. There are things that could certainly be done. Definitely, I suppose it's God. It makes you realise on one level how you know we, particularly in this country, we complain a lot. But when you open up and you look at the broader global scene and uh, what we have in Europe, how lucky we actually are, and what comes with that, of course, is obligations. And thankfully, we've people like yourself, Aideen, to to monitor it and ensure that uh, to some extent we might be living up to those obligations. Aideen Elliot, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mick, for having me. Thanks for the chat and the discussion. Thank you. Uh, I'd also like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. We'll talk to you again soon and stay by the wall in the meantime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.